Um, thanks very much indeed uh, for, for the invitation. Um, so, there's quite a lot of enthusiasm for a metaphysics or ontology of powers. And I might even have added a little bit to that enthusiasm. And I, now I want us to throw some cold water on that enthusiasm. Uh, at least dampen it down. Um, and so part of the context of this paper is that I was invited to contribute to a volume on powers um, edited by John Greco and Ruth Groff, and I'm not the only one in this room who's contributing to that, I think John as well. Um, where the aim of the volume was to um, show how the, an ontology of powers can be put to all sorts of wonderful uses in various different bits of philosophy. Um, and they were hoping that I would uh, contribute to that project of sh showing one wonderful use of powers in, I don't know, say, philosophy of science or some bit of metaphysics. Um, but actually, I thought this is a dangerous project that they're engaged in, dangerous thing, because uh, I don't think that powers are very useful for a lot, of, much at all, um, except in a rather constrained uh, a bit of fun, what I will call fundamental metaphysics. And so I think that what I think is that there's a lot of loose talk going on, and I want to you know, make people behave better. Um, okay, so a bit of. Um, so I, uh, the short story is powers ain't going to do anything for you in social philosophy or uh, philosophy of mind or, uh, or even those bits of metaphysics that are concerned with projects such as you're trying to find the correct analysis for statements of the form A caused B. Um, okay, um, let's get into the introduction. Um, some background stuff I think will be useful. First of all, Lewis's distinction between sparse and abundant properties. Um, so here the idea is that, that, that um, I mean, there's a loose and perfectly acceptable way of talking about properties in which we were happy to say, for example, that grew as a property or you know, the property of being you know, such that one is either in this room you know, or is a red object or anything. Um, and yeah, one can accept such a such talk, but one but one way of thinking about it is that you really all we're doing is allowing properties there to be any um, set of objects. So Lewis thinks of uh, what he calls abundant properties as sets of actual and possible objects. We might take a different approach, um, sort of more linguistic approach, thinking of them as the extensions of. Um, self-consistent predicates. Um, but there is a more restricted notion of property where one would say, well, it's pretty clear that grew, there isn't a property of being grew, but there's quite possibly a property of being green, and there's certainly a property of having unit negative charge, you know, the charge on an electron. Um, so these are the sparse properties, the properties um, you, one might heuristically describe as the properties that one would uh, 
talk about or quantify or refer to in um, you know, completed true science. Um, that's another way of thinking about which they uh, might, uh, might be. Uh, it's implausible that GRU will appear in a uh, final science of uh, anything, perhaps green uh, will. Um, okay, that's one preliminary. Now let's talk about dispositions. Um, start with predicates. So there are lots of dispositional predicates. Some are sort of covert, such as the familiar fragile and soluble. Um, or one might um, use more overt expressions such as is disposed to burn when ignited. Um, other phrases having that form is disposed to M when S. Um, the, these predicates are held, often held to have some kind of close relationship with um, subjunctive or counterfactual conditionals. We might talk about that a bit about that uh, uh, later. Um, okay, but we often talk about dispositions. Yeah, so um, we are simply quantifying over things, over properties, fragility, um, and the like. It seems clear to me that when we talk about dispositions in this way, uh, fragility, solubility, the disposition to burn when ignited, um, possibility being mobile, dispo being disposed to intoxicate when inhaled, um, and so these are all dispositions. Uh, we are thinking of dispositions as being uh, abundant rather than sparse uh, properties. So when we talk, so that that's. That seems right to, that's what a claim I'm, I'm just going to, uh, to make. Um, now, possibly corresponding to some of those um, predicates will be, will be sparse properties also. Um, but when people talk about dispositions in the literature, they, they do so in a, in a loose, abundant kind of way. Okay, what are powers? Okay, uh, um, well... Different people think different things about powers. I'll just say how I think about uh, powers. Um, but there may be a family of related way of thinking about them to which what I say will be similar uh, and the, the general story will come out uh, to be the same. So I think of powers as properties with a certain kind of essence, uh, an essence that can be characterised in dispositional terms. Um, this is a theoretical idea. Um, yeah, it's not as if we are focusing on some independently identified set of properties and calling them powers. Rather, the idea that there is, a prop that there is any property that has a dispositionally characterizable essence is a theoretical claim. And if the theory is wrong, there aren't any such uh, things. Um, and so I've used um, yes, an intentionally novel technical term, potency, to designate this kind of property because the term power is used a, a, a lot and if it helps introducing technical term with a precise meaning to introduce a, a, a new term. Um, but unfortunately it hasn't caught on and we're stuck with the powers vocabulary, um, which I think is unfortunate because it leads to uh, confusion. 
that's really part of my story uh, today. Um, and powers are intended to be sparse properties. They are intended to be um, among the natural properties, and they are intended to be fundamental uh, natural properties. So those who believe in powers, um, thinking, think of them as metaphysically uh, basic and not dependent upon or supervenient on any other kind of entity. Um, so I think of them as uh, as universals, uh, along with Armstrong and indeed Lewis acknowledges that you know, a useful way of thinking about uh, sparse properties or a useful um, proposal regarding them is that they are uh, universals. Okay. Um, so powers and dispositions are different things. Um, so most of the things that people talk about as being dispositions, as I said, are abundant properties. So I, it's, it seems clear to me that there isn't going to be a, a science in which uh, f the property of fragility is going to uh, play a prominent role, or any role. Um, and furthermore, um, what we say about dispositions makes no reference to them having any kind of, uh, of essence. There's a relationship between power and uh, disposition. This is that your powers are characterised as having a dispositionally uh, characterisable uh, essence. Um, so, as I said, powers are theoretical entities. It's disputable whether there are any powers. Um, but in the way that people talk about fragility, it's you know, not disputable that uh, things possess that brackets abundant property of being fragile. Okay. So dispositions and powers um, are, are are distinct, different, categorically different. Um, so we've got to keep them uh, apart, even if there is a relationship between them. So, for example. Um, David Armstrong denies that there are any powers. Okay, he thinks that all um, the properties are categorical, he, um, but he's not saying that it's impossible to characterise any universal dispositionally. He doesn't deny that there are dispositions. He says there are lots of dispositions. Um, but rather that when you use a dispositional expression, uh, what you're doing is, at least in some cases, in some cases what you're doing is... Um, talking about a universal via the contingent causal role that it plays, or dispositional, or the contingent dispositional character that it has. So, in his view, um, a property, um, I mean, maybe even be a, a sparse natural property like like um, uh, like charge that. Um, we may talk about it in a dispositional way, the disposition to uh, attract uh, things of an opposite charge, uh, repel those of a like charge, but that is not to characterize, so that's a disposition, but it doesn't characterize charge's essence, it just picks it out via a description that is true of it, a dispositional description that's true of it in the actual world. In other worlds where the laws are different, 
the very same property will be uh, picked out by uh, different uh, expressions, and that dispositional characterization won't be true uh, of it. Okay. So what follows, it's going to be important to keep that distinction in mind. Okay, now I want to um, characterise two different projects that one might have in, in metaphysics. Um, and I call these fundamental metaphysics and analytical metaphysics, although I think that on the train I did wonder whether that second thing I called analytical metaphysics might just be more simply called uh, non-fundamental metaphysics. But in fundamental metaphysics, um, or fundamental ontology, what we aim to do is to give a story about what the fundamental entities of the world are, how they relate, and how they account for the most basic and general features of the world, such as the existence of facts or the fundamental laws of nature. Okay, that's a sort of project in fundamental metaphysics. Um, so we're looking at the sort of fundamental structure of the world upon which everything else supervenes. Um, the other kind of metaphysics that I this afternoon Lisa calling analytical metaphysics, we aren't concerned with uh, a fundamental ontology. We're not concerned with a sort of fundamental level of uh, existence. Rather, um, a typical project in this analytical metaphysics might be something like trying to give necessary sufficient conditions for the correct application of A causes B. Causes in sentences of the form a causes b, and we know all about the attempts to uh, to do that. We want to know when it's true uh, that Susie's throwing the stone caused the breaking of the uh, the windows. Okay, uh, the window. So that's something what one does in the something that's called metaphysics, but it's a quite a different kind of activity. Um, bit of metaphysics from what I call fundamental uh, metaphysics. Um, so when we talk about whether or not there are powers and what they might do for us, at least as I've defined powers, we're do engaged in fundamental uh, metaphysics. Um, but in other areas of philosophy, we might offer dispositional accounts of this and that. So we might offer a dispositional account of causation, and we'll come to one later on, or uh, a dispositional account of uh, rule following, which I'll go on to mention in a, uh, in a, in a moment. But when you're doing that, that's a diff completely different kind of uh, project that one's engaged in. Uh, and if you think the take what I said about there being a distinction between what we talk about between talking about dispositions and talking about powers, uh, then it should be clear that these are very different um, sorts of uh, activity and it's a mistake to uh, confuse them. Okay, so just to give a little bit of flavour of what this, these distinct kinds of activity might be, uh, might be like. Um, so if you reject a fundamental ontology of powers, what might properties be like? Well, you might think, like as Lewis does, and I think Armstrong does too, that properties are, are quiddities. Um, so here's the difference between quiddities and powers. Um, the powers 
theorist thinks that the nature and identity of a um, basic universal is given by this essential dispositional character. Whereas the quiditist thinks that universals don't really have any kind of um, character, uh, essentially. I mean, there's nothing in interesting you can say about the essence of a, a universal according to the quiditist. Um, they take the identity of fundamental universals to be primitive. Um, so the powers theorists will think that universal A in world one is identical with universal B in world two because these properties A and B have the same dispositional uh, character in, in, in the two worlds. Whereas the Quidditch thinks um, that identity is a brute uh, fact. Um, they think that uh, dispositional gnomic roles can be, can be swapped. So they think that the following uh, might be true of the actual world. Uh, the total gnomic or dispositional role of property A um, in in the actual world is RA and of B is RB and then you think of some other possible world and you think that those same properties could exist in that other possible world um, but have their total gnomic roles um, exactly reversed um, so that's what the criticist thinks and the, the power theorist will, will deny that um, and they can get into uh, Debates uh, about whether that's um, a plausible, which of the, whether that's a, the swapping of roles is a plausible uh, um, view to uh, to take. Um, the the criticist, might, yeah, that's a criticism that's made of the criticist view. The criticist might complain in the opposite direction that the power theorist makes. Um, the identity of a power depend upon its um, relationship with its manifestation and stimulus, um, but those will be other powers if you take everything to be a power and then, and then there's a problem about whether the identity is well founded or whether as it were we've got some kind of vicious regress, you know, the power, if the identity or nature of this um, power is bound up with the, the identities of these powers and their identities are bound up with the, their stimulus and manifestation powers and so forth, then there's a worry about, uh, about regress or, um, or going on infinitely or, uh, or some kind of uh, underdetermination. You know, I think there's an answer to that problem. But my point, about, my point in raising the, this debate, you know, the pros and cons of a quiditist versus a powers view, is to give you some idea of what's at stake, or at least what the participants in that debate think is at stake in choosing between uh, a different, just different fundamental um, ontology. Okay. Let's talk about a quite different project one can have, um, one applying the notion of um, disposition. Um, um, so, people argue about what's involved in uh, rule following, what makes it the case that some subject was following rule A as opposed to rule B. Um, when 
all the subject's actual actions are ones mandated both by Rule A and by Rule B. Um, so the rules don't differ for any of the actual actions undertaken by, by the subject. They differ only for cases and circumstances uh, that S has yet to encounter. So one possible answer is that the subject might be disposed to follow rule A, but not disposed to follow rule B. Um, and that looks like a, 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 good, a good answer. Um, so S would behave in the A rule way, but not in the B rule way for some hypothetical as yet unencountered, perhaps never to be encountered, um, uh, circumstance. And as is well known, Saul Kripke raises objections to this view. He points out that it's possible to follow a rule, but make a mistake, and so fail to do as mandated by the rule. Um, but if the subject acted so as to make that mistake, then the subject presumably was disposed to make that mistake. So it was not the case that the subject was disposed to follow the rule. The subject in making a mistake was disposed, at the point of making a mistake, to do something else, to do the mistake. Right. Um, Martin and Heil have responded that Kripke, in making this objection, is assuming uh, something called the simple conditional analysis of dispositions, which says that a dispositional ascription uh, is always exactly equivalent to the corresponding subjunctive or counterfactual conditional. I'll come to that in a, in, in a moment. But that simple conditional analysis is known to be false, thanks to various uh, counterexamples, which I'll also mention in a moment. Um, and so Kripke's objection fails. Um, and that's not the end of the story. Um, but the moral of telling it is not to so much to inform you about that debate, but just to give you um, a flavour of what's involved in debates, a typical debate over a dispositional account of X. Okay. Um, um, note that it's a completely different kind of question from the one concerning powers versus uh, quiddities. Um, we're not asking ourselves about fundamental properties. Uh, we're not asking ourselves about the modal character or identities of a whole category of ontologically fundamental entities. Um, and it doesn't seem to involve um, any speculation or argument about the um, coherence of you know, a supposed other possible worlds you know, under some descriptions. Um, so, rather, the issue is a rather more traditional one concerning arguably the relationship between concepts um, and doesn't appear to have any significant ontological uh, consequences. I'm not sure that's the only way of seeing what's going on in those, that uh, debate, but it's um, it, nonetheless, I hope you see that it's, it's, it's a, a different kinds of different kinds of question are being uh, are being. Uh, asked. Um, so what I'm saying is that um, one's view of the fundamental metaphysical question, the right answer to this question, are fundamental universals powers or quiddities? You might take a view on that. Your view on that, I think, 
can be, it is, ought to be, entirely orthogonal to your view of the correct answer to the, uh, the question of so-called analytical metaphysics. It is to follow a rule to be disposed in a certain way. Um, one might be a powers theorist and believe that fundamental universals have an essentially dispositional character, but one would not thereby be given any reason to think that rule following is dispositional. So if you think that the fundamental universals are dispositional in character, that doesn't mean you have to think that rule following is dispositional in character. Um, uh, nor for that matter, um, if you were able to argue that rule following is dispositional in character, in, in its nature, your rule following is to, to follow a disposition, that wouldn't provide any evidence for the truth of a power's view of fundamental ontology. These things are unconnected. Now, possibly, I hope that the way I've explained it there um, makes it all look, that, that point look obvious. But the fact is, you look at the literature and you confusing these kinds of projects is, is, is all over the place, I'm afraid to say. Um, and um, I fear that it might be you in, in this book to which I'm contributing to, so this is sort of something. Don't believe everything you read in this book kind of thing. I may not. <laughs> um, um, okay. Um, how are we getting on for for a, a bit. Um, you can take until six if you want, Alexander. Okay. Still, um, I might I might skip something about laws of nature. Interesting though it is. Um, let's just go on to um, talk about causation. I mean, so there's I've got a section on 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 laws where. I said that one of the things that a powers theory can do is um, explain what the laws of nature are uh, in, a, in a roundabout and general way. So one can, um, I argue, prove, and this is, you, you can see that this is section two, um, that if it's correct that certain fundamental universals uh, have a dispositional character, then you, you, you can show that certain um, universal generalizations are going to turn out to be true and indeed necessarily true. And that's all very nice because it gives you a way of being able to explain where the laws of nature come from. They, that's, they're reflections of these essences of the fundamental uh, properties. Um, it gives an explanation of the uh, the necessity that some of us think uh, attaches to to laws, says where it comes from, uh, and so forth. But what one isn't doing there is saying, "Tell, give me a law, and I'll give you a sort of a, a, you know, a, an explanation of its truth conditions." of that precise law in terms of powers. Right? You're not going to be able to translate um, yeah, Avogadro's law into, into powers talk. That is not the, the, uh, the claim. You, if we knew we have our final physics in front of us, we might be able to do that for the fundamental laws of physics. 
Um, but since the relationship between the fundamental laws and the supervening laws is um, scientifically very complex and possibly well, you, something we'll never properly understand. I mean, you certainly don't really understand it for, for the relationship between um, the basic laws of uh, chemistry and the laws of physics. Um, there's no reason to suppose uh, that uh, a powers theorist ought to be in the position to explain uh, explain every law directly in terms of powers. What the powers theorist can do, what she can say is, um, yeah, I can explain why in general there will be some necessary um, general uh, truths um, that reflect the essence of, that, uh, of um, fundamental properties. Um, that's why I think that there are laws uh, and that they have some kind of necessity um, and you know, the other laws will supervene on, uh, on those. Okay. Um, look, causation. Um, now, most of the time when people talk about the philosophy, philosophical debates concerning causation, um, they are talking about doing things such as uh, analysing statements of the form you know, A caused B. Susie's throwing the stone caused the window to to break. Okay. Um, so I say I think that's a a um, yeah, an issue in what I call analytical uh, metaphysics. And one's got to distinguish looking at the handout these two kinds of two kinds of uh, question. Um, you, the first line: you, What features of the does the world possess that are responsible for, for the fact that there are causal relations? I mean, perhaps there might have something to say about that, perhaps. Um, from questions of the form, how should we analyse those kinds of statements? Um, those are two different kinds of projects, but I think they've been conflated, for example, by uh, John Jacobs, who proposes a powers theory of causation. Um, and he talks about powers in the way that I've done. So um, something like a, a property that has a dispositional essence, a sparse property with a dispositional essence. But then he goes on to contrast his powers theory with Lewis's counterfactual theory of causation and argues that a powers theory handles preemption cases better than a counterfactual theory because the powers theory makes causes sufficient for their effects and uh, not necessary. Um, so this is just an example of the kind of confusion that I'm hoping that um, nobody will commit ever again who's been here this afternoon. Um, um, and the reason is this, look, here's a telltale sign um, that, um, that, that there's something fishy going on. Um, and it's that when he contrasts his powers theory and the counterfactual theory, saying so, you know, his theory is better than the counterfactual theory, Jacobs makes no appeal to the fact that powers are essentially dispositional. He makes no um, appeal to their essences or these modal features that 
was so important in characterizing what powers were and just, and and you were central to the debate about whether we should think of uh, fundamental natural properties as powers or quiddities or something else. You, that was all about modal um, uh, questions. But those differences, those features of power just don't enter into his um, his so-called power theory of causation. Um, um, what's what he's doing is giving us a dispositional account of causation. But just as I said, that there's no relationship between a you know, um, uh, theory of powers and a dispositional account of rule following, there's no relationship between theory of powers and a dispositional account of causation. Um, um, so... I mean, of course, it might be. You might say, "Look, you know, the powers involve dispositions, um, so the power theory is just giving us more than we need to do the work." Um, but for that to be a right answer, we need to identify some powers in 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 the, in the case that that Jacobs discussed. So Susie throws a stone which hits and breaks the bottle, but Bob throws also, and his stone would have broken the bottle if Susie had not thrown. Um, okay, let's. Um, it might be correct to describe Susie at the moment of throwing as disposed to break the bottle. Break the bottle. Um, disposed to break the bottle if she throws. So I think a dispositional theory should say something like this. But does Susie have the power to break the bottle if she throws? That's not a question that we can give an immediate yes to, since power here is a technical term, a natural property with this dispositional essence. And it is at best far from obvious that there is such a property. There is no fundamental natural property of that sort. Um, don't think you know, the power to break bottles by throwing stones is something that we should expect to appear in any uh, any fundamental physics. Um, but perhaps there's a non-fundamental natural property that has this dispositional essence. But how should we answer this question? It doesn't look as if any non-fundamental science is likely to employ that property uh, either. Um, nor, more generally, um, is it clear that a, a natural property of a complex object has a dispositional essence, even if the natural properties of the object's proper parts all have dispositional essences too? Okay, so we might think, so even if you think that all the fundamental natural properties are powers, essentially dispositional, it's, it doesn't seem to me at all obvious that it follows from that, that the natural the, the non-fundamental natural properties, you know, the properties that will appear in non-fundamental sciences such as the physics and the psychology and the rest of it, um, that those natural properties will be uh, powers-like as well. In fact, it seems clear to me that they're not going to. Um, you're containing hydrogen atoms seems to be, to be an important property of molecules. Um, or um, being a eukaryote in biology seems to be an important natural property, but it's providing those don't look to be dispositional, let alone essentially dispositional uh, properties. Okay. So 
So, um, so in the next section, what I wanted to do, doing the written paper, is give a quick rundown of um, some of the sort of moves that are made in the debate concerning the analysis of um, dispositions. Um, and look, you hear, I wonder how history of dispositions in four minutes. Um, I won't go all the way back to Carnap, but um, by the time we'd gotten to the late to, I guess to the 70s, 60s, 70s, the, uh, um, yeah, 60s, uh, probably, um, we, yeah, people generally accepted a conditional analysis of dispositions, that's the thing, CA on the handout. Um, so simple equivalence between dispositional statements and um, subjunctive conditional claims. Um, and then um, Charlie Martin comes along um, and expressed, I think, something that, that had been in the air in any case, but he should get the credit for articulating it nice and clearly. The problem with this, which is, is like, goes like this, um, things can change their dispositions. Um, so, it doesn't look a very fragile glass, but you imagine it were. Um, you can make the fragile glass non-fragile, but say by heating it up, so it all becomes becomes soft and squidgy, as opposed to sort of hard and fragile. Um, so imagine that the moment it's cool and very uh, cool and fragile, and I strike the glass. But at the moment of striking, the glass heats up sufficiently rapidly that it becomes sort of soft and non-fragile, and so rapidly that it's, that's more rapid than any process initiated by my striking it, uh, that it, as a consequence it doesn't break. So at the time of striking it was fragile, um, it was struck but didn't break. And we've got a nice counterexample to the simple conditional uh, analysis. Um, and then David Lewis comes along and says, well, what we need to do is uh, try and capture what was correct about the conditional analysis and say, it, um, and reform, reform the conditional analysis. And you know, there's what he says on the handout, but I won't try and explain that in detail, but you can get the quick idea that it's uh, like, uh, like this. Um, what happened in my counterexample was the causal basis of the fragility, it's the, the sort of microstructure that it had when cool, was changed by it being heated up. So what we need to do to get the conditional analysis to work is um, require that the causal basis remains for long enough for the manifestation to, uh, to occur. Okay, so once we say, hey, and, and the causal basis of the fragility remains, then, um, then we should be all right with the, 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 condi the conditional analysis. And that thing, RCA, is a sort of fancy way of, of trying to do that without um, the circularity of saying the causal basis of uh, fragility. Um, and then, um, yeah, that does... Um, 
on the face of it, it does okay for for things. I, there are all sorts of problems uh, with it, some of which are well known, mentioned on the the, the handout, um, and that's to point out that it's not that in the manifestation of the process that leads to the manifestation of disposition, it's not always what it's known as its causal basis that's uh, required. There are other ways of preventing a disposition from manifesting itself. And your simple example would be uh, uh, arsenic uh, uh, is disposed to poison you, but if you take arsenic and then, this is very nice. Uh, you take British anti-Lewisite, um, <laughs> then you uh, can prevent the arsenic from poisoning you. Not by sort of changing the arsenic into something else, but by preventing the arsenic from being absorbed by your by your body. Okay. Um, so that's one kind of counterexample. There are other other examples that I'm happy to share with you, including sort of new ones, um, if you want. But that's. Um, but really what I wanted to, to do is to, to get you into thinking about that, uh, that little debate. Then I'll ask, ask you this question. Um, do the positions taken in this debate in analytical metaphysics relate to any of the positions taken by the participants in regard, with regard to fundamental metaphysics? Of course not. Okay. So... Charlie Martin has a sort of fancy or funny sort of dual nature view where he thinks that something could be both liquidity and a power. It's sort of difficult to understand. Uh, Lewis is, as you know, a famous Humean. Uh, fundamental properties are quiddities for, for him. I take a powers view of fundamental ontology. But those differences between us do not show up in this debate. They're just completely unrelated. Um, um, of course, I, well, perhaps I shouldn't say completely unrelated. We might say, well, of course they're related, because look, and this is what I call Lewis's chain. Lewis has given his reformed conditional analysis of dispositions, which mentions causation, you see if you read it. Um, then he gives an analysis of causation in terms of counterfactuals, uh, as you know, and counterfactuals gives us semantics for using possible worlds. And an important feature of that uh, semantics is the proximity of possible worlds and laws of nature play an important role in determining which worlds are close to one another. And then he, uh, what are laws of nature? Well, he gives a well-known um, systematic, or sophisticated um, regularity view of the laws of nature in terms of his Humean uh, mosaic and his Humean supervenience. So, of course, his view of dispositions is related to his fundamental metaphysics. Yes, <laughs> but only by an enormously long chain. Um, such that you, one can, you know, and the chain is made up of separate links, the strength of which, the value of which, are, is independent of the strength and value of any of the other links. Right? So you can agree with some bits of this chain and disagree with others. So you might think that his reform conditional analysis is correct, that he does a good job on telling us about dispositional claims, but think his counterfactual analysis of causation is wrong. Or agree with that, but not like the 
possible world semantics or like the possible world semantics but not be a modal realist or think that they're not related to laws of nature in the way that he says and um, yeah and, and and so it goes uh, goes on one could break this chain at any point you you wish and so to suggest that as it were that um, that there's anything as it were particularly cumean about Lewis's uh, account of dispositions I think is deeply misleading right? um, one could agree with his disposition, account of dispositions and not be a Humean at all or the other way uh, a way around so, and I think that one of the things that is going wrong in thinking that a powers theory has a lot to tell us about causation and various other things, such as the things I'll come into just a moment, is that it's tempting to think that, well, there's this sort of family of concepts or metaphysical features of the world, uh, such as powers, laws, causes, dispositions, perhaps also things like action, um, and that these are all related together um, such in a close-knit way, such that when you add to this the claim power, powers are fundamental things, or you know, that the, the uni fundamental universals are powers, that somehow you've got a power theory of everything else in this in this bundle. But actually, that that the bundle isn't so closely the parts of the bundle aren't so closely related or at least as it were that that our cognition of those relations is um not so clear that what follow that 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 things immediately follow from adopting a powers um ontology it, what the relationship between for example, laws and causation is is something that is deeply argued about by uh, by lots of uh, people. Whether it's um, and so it seems to me that there, there, it's just simply not the case that um, adopting a powers ontology has immediate and obvious ramifications uh, elsewhere in one's uh, metaphysics, least of all in these analytical projects of trying to find necessary and sufficient conditions, or say something else in, informative about the truth conditions of statements such as A called to B, or X is disposed to yield manifestation M in response to stimulus uh, S. Okay. Um, I will conclude with um, another egregious example of what happens when you confuse powers uh, and dispositions. Um, I guess like this, um, Um, so, numerous authors have noted that the nature of powers involves some kind of pointing to 
um, things outside of themselves. Um, it's not my preferred language, but that's the uh, language they use. Things that might not even exist. So the possible manifestation of a power. And they think well, this is very similar to the phenomenon of intentionality. Um, and so some of these enthusiasts, people like Molnar and John Heil, even talk in terms of physical intentionality, which is what powers are supposed to have. So um, in discussing uh, a book by Molnar on, on powers, um, John Hyle says, Molnar's ontology of powers is pregnant with possibilities barely touched upon by the author. Suppose, for instance, you accept the idea that powers yield physical intentionality. What of mental intentionality, the intentionality of, uh, of, of thought? And he goes on to, to articulate why this looks like a really nice idea. Um, yeah, he says, this is a striking possibility, linking these two to being, in fact, one and the same thing, one that's easily overlooked in an era in which causal accounts of representation are widely taken for granted. Um, in causal accounts, representations are connected to the world via incoming causal chains. In a dispositional model, the direction is reversed. In the interest of the time, to, you to cut the one punch line, what Heil has done is gone from talking about Molnar's ontology, which, which is an ontology of powers, uh, and saying how it might be used in a disposition, last term, a dispositional model uh, of, of representation and intentionality. Um, so he's committed exactly the fallacy that I think is going on in thinking that a powers ontology, um, uh, which I think should be restricted to discussions of fundamental metaphysics, is supposed to have um, uh, consequences for an area that's quite different, um, philosophy of mind, and that's just a direct consequence of confusing powers and dispositions, which I've tried to keep so far. Uh, apart. Um, similar thoughts expressed by Brian, Brian Ellis, and he um, who draws on Sellers's idea of a tension between the manifest image and the scientific image. Um, and so I think he he's got, his story really is that this, this tension arises because our scientific image is sort of imbued with a Humean. Um, or semi-human picture of um, properties as essentially inert um, and things being sort of pushed around by the laws of nature in virtue of the fact the laws of nature govern the properties of things, things that's a human or semi-human uh, uh, picture. Um, Whereas if you adopt a powers ontology, you sort of somehow feel that things are being moved around under their own steam. You know, they have they have inherent agency. He he uh, he says they're not pushed around by the the laws, which would be more an Armstrongian view, or actually sort of fundamentally really doing nothing on a sort of fully human. Uh, picture. Um, so he thinks that you, once one adopts this uh, powers ontology, one's freed from this tension and you know, one could even solve the problem of uh, free will, which he thinks is a particular manifestation of this. You, you don't want to be pushed around by the laws. That's the, that's the worry of the problem of uh, 
free will. Um, for then, we as agents are composed of objects whose properties are themselves active um, 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 and you know, not, not, are not passive. You know, we as agents are made up of objects that themselves, themselves have agency. Um, so the idea is that um, a mystery arises because you know, the possession by persons of intentionality or agency, or free agency, seems inconsistent with their being composed of parts that lack intentionality or agency. And the mystery is solved by the metaphysics of powers because then our parts do have intentionality and agency in virtue of the powers that they possess. I mean, this is just... We have some despair at this. Um, um, I mean, there's all sorts of problems. There's a composition problem. I mean, even if our parts did have intentionality and agency, how would that explain how we as wholes have intentionality and agency? I mean, they don't, the intentionality isn't the sort of thing that composes in the right way. You know, that, that having bits that have intentionality doesn't seem to explain how a whole could. Um, any more than one could, you want to explain the impressiveness of the Eiffel Tower by saying, look, that good is really impressive, and so is that one over there, and you know, so forth. Um, that's not you know, how it works. Um, so I don't think the intentionality of mental states could be explained by phys physical intentionality, even if it existed. Um, um, So, another thing is 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 that um, you, when you look carefully, that this physical intentionality idea disappears. So um, there's nothing like the intentionality of uh, you, that, that is often associated with intentional states for, for dispositions. Um, there's nothing like uh, genuine agency. Uh, involved. A loaded primed gun is disposed to fire when the trigger is pulled, but that firing doesn't exhibit agency. Um, yeah, anyone thinks about what agency in, involves, it's, it's the, the relationship between uh, agency and the manifestation of dispositions it just, it just falls uh, apart. Um, and finally, these cases are supposed to draw upon the nature of powers and so provide that ontology with some confirmation. So one part of the picture is, the argument is, look, we can solve these problems in philosophy of mind, that's why you ought to adopt a powers ontology. But as I said before, powers are properties that are essentially dispositional. But these accounts don't seem to draw upon that crucial feature, and that's the criticism I made of Jacobs with respect to causation. Um, and you, what's going on is we're just flipping backwards and forwards between powers uh, and dispositions without noticing the important differences between uh, the uh, the two. Um, yeah, and finally, um, I mean, it's worth just thinking back to the original problem. Um, how would it really dispel the notion of the problem of free will to think that my parts um, are um, do what they do as the result of their of the essences of the, the fundamental properties that they, they instantiate 
that's what's going on. How, how does that help? As opposed to thinking of them you being um, quiddities governed by uh, by by laws. You know, after all, if the account of laws that I give is correct, either way you get out true generalizations. Um, and yeah, I think if you're worried by the problem of free will, thinking that you know, the, that the essence of, of, of the fundamental properties of the most basic parts you're made of determine where you're those parts will be in 24 hours' time, uh, and um, determined that a long time, long time ago, uh, should be equally, uh, equally worrying. Um, okay. Quick conclusion. Um, look, it, it'd be nice to be able to do philosophy in the way that Fichte, Hegel, and Schelling did. That should be horrible, but I mean, it, it, um, <laughs> but you're know, trying to think that you could do a sort of systematic philosophy whereby your your ethics and your metaphysics and your epistemology and your political philosophy all sort of fitted together in a neat neat way, so that there's some some unity of ideas, um, so um, that your correct view in ethics should be determined by your correct theory of knowledge or something by some further thing, say your metaphysics. Um, and I don't think the epistemology of philosophy just isn't like this, it seems to me. Um, you very often uh, one's answer to one question might be perfectly consistent with both of diametrically opposed answers to, di to a different question, different elsewhere in philosophy. I mean, it's 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 much, so the contrast is it's not like arithmetic where you get a small number of axioms and, and derive um, all sorts of interesting theorems just from those um, it's a bit more like science where um, it, the pro given that the project of reductionism has failed the fact you can't derive the correct chemistry from the correct physics um, and making the connections that between the two is extremely complicated and difficult and uh, uh, yeah, certainly non uh, non-trivial um, and I think that um, part of what's going on is, is, is an illusion that the connections in between questions and answers in philosophy are, are closer and more straightforward than they um, they really uh, really are. So, in particular, I think that there's a conflation between talking about dispositions and uh, powers. I also think that there's a lot of loose use of uh, metaphor. Metaphor might be heuristically helpful, but it doesn't cut any metaphysical ice as far as I'm concerned. And I think that there's a more general preset possibly in the epistemology of, epistemology of philosophy which says that you should treat with caution any claim to find a moral for debates in epistemology, ethics or social philosophy or the like from considerations in fundamental metaphysics um, precisely because it's likely to depend upon a conflation of our concepts or an abuse of metaphor.